I suppose the theme of these next three nights, and I suppose four Sunday nights, will be together. But in uh, four weeks' time, the last Sunday of Advent, and we'll be having candles and carols and, and uh, looking forward to Christmas week. But I, I kind of began to think a little bit back in July um, with, uh, <clears throat> about Christmas. Sounds sad, doesn't it, so long ago? But um, Kate, when she was telling our kids' worker, children's worker, she, she said to us, uh, to Phil and I, when we were in a team meeting and then to the church, she said, uh, as they were planning camp over for the kids up at Hook Norton, she said, I think we're going to do Christmas this year at camp over. And we were kind of like, okay, it's July. But she said, no, no, seriously, we're going to do Christmas. It's going to be great. We're going to have a Christmas dinner. We're going to camp. We're going to um, tell the Christmas story. And uh, there's some photos I haven't got, but the leaders did a kind of find your leader. They were in fancy dress around the town. You can imagine what it looked like in July when everyone's in their shorts and T-shirts and there's robed shepherds and wise men lurking around the corners. And, and people are like, what are you doing? This is a bit mad. I mean, it's a little bit early. And Kate was saying, actually, we're, we're doing this because, because once Christmas comes, and uh, the kids particularly, they get so kind of engrossed in, in the week. They're tired with all the stuff that's going on at the end of term and celebrating for uh, the season and working in junior church towards nativity and performance. And, uh, you know, there's lots of stuff going on. And she was saying, we never actually just stop and explain the story and why. Do you know what I mean? Even in the carol service and, uh, and the Christmas, we read the story and it's brilliant, but, but sometimes we don't stop and understand why. So I wanted to, to do <clears throat> at least three weeks uh, on this little theme of, of welcoming the why, about Advent, about incarnation. If you're wondering what it means, that's what it's about. Picture's pretty obvious. So uh, let's turn in John's Gospel, and we'll have that picture back later. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, John's Gospel is probably the latest, last of the Gospels that were written. And um, John, as you know, the Apostle, the Apostle John wrote this as one of the letters in the New Testament that we have from him. John, first one, one, two, three, John and Revelation. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not understood it. And goes on, we come to these majestic words in verse 14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, moved into the neighborhood, camped with us. John, the, the eyewitness, the apostle, the one who 
actually remained with Jesus from the beginning right through the journeying and on the high places, the low places, in the intimate places and the miraculous places and, and the troubling places and, and into the arresting place. He didn't abandon. And at the foot of the cross, seeing Jesus torn apart and dying. And there on that first Sunday morning, which we call Easter, and a tomb empty. And Jesus risen. And Jesus cooking on the lake of, of Galilee, the Sea of Tiberias, and, and feeding them and, and commissioning them and sending them out. And John there as the Spirit was poured out. And John there as the church extended and expanded and seeing what God did as Paul was called. And the church exploded across the Mediterranean. And John there, what the apostle who survived... The apostle who wasn't killed by the sword or crucified upside down. The one who lived to old age. And under Emperor Domitian, who got so exasperated with these Christians. So exasperated because they kept becoming followers of Jesus and not kind of paying allegiance and, and just doing the way things the Romans would do. He was like, what do we do with these people? And he killed some and then more would spring up and Christianity kept spreading and he realized that John was one of the leaders and realized that killing people wasn't the best idea because it just caused more. So he thought, I know, I'll send him onto a barren rock and he can be exiled. John, the eyewitness, the, the witness of the good news, the word became flesh, made his dwelling amongst us. And that we, John, and James, and Peter, and Thaddeus, and Matthias, have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That old man on his island... Looking back, reflecting, remembering. Three years with Jesus. God showed up. God showed up and dwelt amongst us. Why? Why did God become one of us? Why did God choose to live amongst us? You know, the Jewish people were expecting, and we read these verses again and again at Christmas, and we know that there must be something in the two-thirds bit before we get to the Christmas stories in Matthew 1 and Luke 1. There's a lot of pages here. And there's a lot of story and goodness, but part of the story and the goodness is saying there's someone coming, a rescuer, a promised one. And they understood a Messiah would come, and they understood that he would represent God, but... Not God himself. You know, in many, and it's still true, in many of the, the religions in the world and the ancient religions, kind of, it was like moving on up, not moving on down. That if you're atop of the tree like Pharaoh, you kind of proclaimed and people looked up to you as a God. Because you had all the money and the wealth and the power and the privilege and the status. You were top of the tree and, and actually, well, he must be like God. Or the emperor, Domitian and Caesar and Nero and, and all those others. 
There, yeah, they're God's son. They're incarnate. They're, 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 they're God's. Because they're powerful. But not the gospel. It's entirely the other way up. The baby, fragile, and vulnerable, and tiny. And out there in the countryside, kind of almost unnoticed. Uh, if you into science fiction films, anyone? Marvel comics, superheroes. You know, you see it. These, these people, I don't know if you've seen the film Thor uh, and the Avengers. He kind of pops up there. You see what I mean? Here is kind of Thor, this big muscly kind of god. And he comes down to earth and we're all kind of like small and insignificant. And he's powerful and tough. And, and he kind of looks like a human apart from he's big and blonde and pretty, you know, stacked and, and uh, you know, but he's got this superhuman strength. He's not really like us. He's more than, he's super powered. And that's what saves the day. He's got some flaws, clearly, but really, scratch beneath and he's not like us. He's God, isn't he? But not what John testifies to. The word became flesh. Scratch beneath the surface and you get blood and guts. You see, Jesus, nobody would make this up. I mean, this is pretty astonishing stuff, isn't it? Nobody would make up God becoming flesh, but John said, yeah, a baby. Luke says, yeah, a baby. Matthew says, yeah, a baby. Mark, because he's short and quick, doesn't really bother with the story of the birth, but he gets there and says, Jesus, carpenter. 30-ish years old, watch and listen to this one. God came to dwell among people. And that's why we welcome the why. Why the incarnation? Why Christmas? Apart from presents and fairy lights and snow and reindeers. Why? Turn with me in, uh, in John 14 and we'll, we'll pick it up and we'll read a little bit. Uh, they've been with Jesus three years John 14. And uh, Jesus is preparing them. It's the Last Supper. And uh, in John's gospel, he washes their feet and he's predicting his betrayal and, and comes up in verse 14. Thanks, James. Uh, chapter 14, verse 1. He, we, we find these words, Jesus speaking to those gathered, the 11 plus a few others. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. I mean, that's pretty amazing. I was thinking about it because I knew what I was preaching about. As Jess was uh, leading the song, majesty, worship, you know, the name of Jesus, majesty, or glory, honor, and praise. I mean, we're according to Jesus, the honor and status of God. I mean, we know that, yeah, we know that. But it is still Amazing. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. Sometimes it talks about mansions or, or dwellings. But I would have told you, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be, may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Now, it's clear that the disciples don't know 
what Jesus is on about. You know, he's, he says to them, don't let your hearts be troubled, because actually, he's just told them he's going to be uh, arrested and betrayed and, uh, and handed over to the authorities and going to be betrayed by them, and it's going to be awful. And this is Jesus, the miracle worker. This is Jesus, the water walker. This is Jesus who has confronted the powers and got off scot-free, and now it seems like the net is closing. What's he on about? We don't even know where he's, he is going. Trust in God. Trust in me also. I mean, you know, just think about what Jesus is saying. You know, you trust God. Yeah, we trust God. Trust in me also. The same. God, Jesus, trust us. Trust us. They don't know where he's going. Thomas, verse 5, said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Interesting, isn't it? That uh, Christian, the term Christian wasn't a term that got used until much later. But we find that in the story in Acts 11, 12. At Antioch, they could be called Christians. And it's actually a phrase of mocking and ridicule. It means little Christs. And it's like, oh, you little Christ, you. Who do you think you are? You're as bad as that one who was punished like a criminal, little Christs. And early Christians got called uh, followers of the way. And this is, you know, in here, you know the way to where I'm going, to the place where I'm going. And, and, uh, and Thomas, we don't know. Uh, we don't know where you're going, he says. So how can we know the way? And Jesus answered this famous verse that we now learn. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. How can we know the way? Jesus says, I am the way. So you do know it, disciples. You know the way. I am it. And incidentally, I'm the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. And this is so crucial and so shocking that the central aspect, the central focus of Christianity is Jesus. It's not the Bible. The central focus of Christianity is Jesus himself. If you're not a Christian, you know the scandal of this. And if you are a Christian, you know so often people kind of chastise us from it. How can you say he's the way? How can you say he's the only way? All these good other prophets and leaders and religious people, they have something to tell us, don't they? Well, maybe. But none of them said, I am the way. I'm the way to the Father. It's offensive, but it's really clear. Jesus says in verse 7, If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. See, we really want to understand this. And everyone asks this question at some point in the life. And Philip now, kind of, Thomas isn't getting very, where, very far with Jesus. And Philip kind of chimes up as they're sitting around the table. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Each one of us has done that at some point in our life, haven't we? We kind of said, Lord, if you, uh, God, just reveal yourself to me, okay? Then I'll be sure. 
then I'll be certain. If you just kind of appear in a blinding flash of light, or we're walking around and thinking, just, uh, you know, if, if that bush there, you know, up on top of Dover's Hill, you know, if that doesn't burn up, then I'll know uh, you're with me. Then I'll know you're real. We know that if there was just that moment, then all the doubts would disappear. If we knew for certain that there was a God and God appeared, we would know with certainty and know that he knows us. He knows me. Ah, oh, we'd be fine. When it's good, yeah, I remember that moment. When it's rough, oh, I can cling on to that. You know, if only we could see God. And Jesus answered, verse 9, to Philip's question, show us the Father, that'll be enough for us. Come on, Jesus, you know, you've raised the dead, you've healed the sick, we've seen you deliver people from evil. Come on, no, you know, before you're dead, you know, before this stuff that you've just said is going to happen, happens, show us the Father, come on. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been with among you such a long time. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Philip, in other words, Jesus says, I'm as close as you will ever get to seeing the Father. I'm as close. You'll never, ever find a better understanding of the Father. If you want to know the Father, see me. I am as close and as good and as clear as it gets. Really, as clear as it gets. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say aren't just my own, but they're his words. You want to know what God says, listen to me. If you want to know what God's attitude is, see me, listen to me. If you want to know God, his thoughts and his ways and his perspective and his outlook on life, listen to me, says Jesus. Well, actually, he goes on to say, rather, it's the Father living in me who is doing his work. In other words, guys, watch me. See how I love, see how I behave, see how I act, see how I interact, see how I interface with this world. This is what Jesus is like, and this is who he is, God. Why? To communicate to us, to these guys, this is God, truly, certainly, without a shadow of a doubt. You see, God, God wants us to know him and that he sent himself. He sent himself to us that we should know him, personal. He showed up in the neighborhood, dwelt amongst us in order that the guesswork and the speculation and the, and the supposition and the imagination, what would God be like? Well, he's here. You see, we, we've spent too long in the world and still do, trying to figure it out. Trying to work out, well, if we made God, what would he look like or be like? Maybe not he at all. It, she, them, many them. But this is the wonder, this is the welcoming of the why. We can't figure it out. 
that Jesus says, the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we've seen the glory of God, the one and only, full of grace and truth. That this in Jesus is the best explanation of God. Not just information sent in a telegram. Look at Jesus, he says. I am the explanation. Listen to what I say and watch. And you'll never get any closer to God than me. Isn't that amazing? You will never get any closer to God than Jesus. If that's true, that's amazing. And that's awesome. That we really should make every opportunity to watch what he does and what he says. We have a go at sometimes working out what God is like, and, and we get in all sorts of a pickle and a muddle. What's God like? If we, put, if we put Jesus aside, we get all sorts of complications. You know, as Christians, we're really good at sometimes at saying, oh, you know, because we know God loves us and God guides us, we, we kind of have a God moment you know, in life where there's a God moment and we say, oh, that was God in working in my life. And probably, maybe. But we, we sometimes kind of see God at work in one way and then in another way in our life. And it's kind of we try and piece it together and, uh, from the circumstances. And it's kind of like it's a terrible thing. You know, sometimes um, we say, it must be God. It must be God at work in my life. Um, but at the time, it doesn't see. So maybe someone loses their job, and they're kind of going, God, where are you? What are you doing? This can't be God. I thought you cared about me and wanted to provide for me. And, and it means that you lose your job, and you lose your home, and you have to move back in with your parents. That's a bad thing to do, isn't it? Oh, my goodness. Retrograde step. Sorry, James. And, uh, and you kind of say, where? Where is God in all this? Oh, my goodness. Where is he? But then imagine in this, in this circumstance of life, moves home and suddenly realizes that one of the parents, maybe dad, diagnosed with an illness. And actually being back home means that that person got to help out. And, and with the benefit of hindsight, oh yeah, that must be God. Must have been God's will all along. And, and yeah, that's okay. But, or maybe it's like this that, you know, there's a 17-year-old girl, and, and she's, uh, she's about to go to a, kind of uh, her sixth-form ball, and she's really madly in love with one of the, kind of the, the football captain. And, you know, parents know he's not so good, uh, not a good guy. And the girl's praying and praying and praying, saying, Lord, please let him ask me to the dance, to the, to the, uh, the, um, the ball, the party at the end, end of... Um, end of the year, and the boyfriend doesn't ask. The, the, the football player coach doesn't ask. Uh, the football player, captain, doesn't ultimately ask. And the girl goes to her mom, God hates me. I've been praying and praying and praying, and he doesn't listen. He's not answering my prayer. And behind the scenes, mom's praying and praying and praying, saying, Lord, don't let him ask her. Don't let him ask her. I know what he's like. If we just go by circumstance, what's God like? He's just fickle and answers someone's prayer and not others. Fifteen years later, the girl may look back and see about town the once fit and handsome captain of the school soccer team and he's now overweight and bald and think, oh, thank the Lord. (laughs) 
so thankful you didn't answer my prayer. Not having a go at anyone with a hair loss problem or anything like that, but. I love Billy Graham's wife. She, she said, I prayed so many times to marry who to marry and said, if I'd have just gone on my own or trusted in my own wisdom, I'd have married the wrong person three times. If we try and work it out and we just go on the experience or the Sometimes the uncertain ways and the, the happens chance and the hindsight, this is God at work. We can get really the wrong end of the stick. Another way we do it is, is kind of by basing ourselves on traditions. We, we all have traditions. And our Christian tradition, our Baptist, evangelical, charismatic tradition has certain answers and traditions actually help us, and they kind of make it easy, but the ten tends to be that it picks kind of key things, but maybe just misses out some things. We like to have it signed and sealed. You know, there's been a number of times I've worked with young adults particularly, that they've come back to church somehow and started to ask the questions they always wanted to ask. But for whatever reason, they were told either in a house group or in the junior church or wherever it was, oh, you asked too many questions. You know? And that actually means the teacher doesn't know the answer or the pad answer doesn't work. Steve Jobs was one of those, founder of Apple. He walked away from Christianity really early on in his life. He was reading Time magazine and on the front cover of Time magazine, there were pictures of the horrible things going on in the world. And he took the Time magazine into the Sunday school class and before the rest of the class and the Sunday school teacher said, did God do all this? And the teacher gave a terrible answer. And said, now sit down and we'll study the story of something or other. And he walked away from religion. See, religious systems that we construct work sometimes, but not always. And the nature of tradition is that they can so blinker us and so kind of carry us into a mindset that actually things change and we don't notice it and we start just getting worked up about the wrong things. It's easy to look back, you know, a few hundred years ago, they started to kill people because people said the world's not flat. How dare you contradict the scriptures? Jerusalem's the center of the world. And the world's flat. And people sailed around and said, we didn't fall off. <laughs> and we kind of think, oh yeah, stupid Christians. And Galileo and tradition. So often we reduce faith in Jesus to sets of rules, and it's almost like you could print them on a small card. You know, you want to know about this? The answer is probably no. Do you want to do this? No. Do's and don'ts, mostly don'ts, actually, is what faith is reboiled down to. It's election time soon, next year. 
May. And you, you get into that debate, was Jesus a conservative or a Labour supporter? Or is he UKIP after all? <laughs> and you will have heated debates and there will be the Christian Socialist Party and the, Christian, uh, the, the Conservatives uh, Christian Alliance and, and they'll be saying, well, Jesus is for innovation and, and inspiration and, and kind of, you know, make the best of your life. Do, you know, God's given gifts and others say, well, actually, there are the poor and the, the marginalized. And, you know, Jesus is more socialist than conservative. And, you know, we kind of fit him into our constructs. Jesus didn't come to take sides. He came to take over. Well, too often we, we hear about someone's faith going well and, and it was all good and God seemed to fit into life until my parents' marriage crashed. Or it seemed to work and church was a nice place to be and hang out, but, but then someone got pregnant out of marriage and it turned nasty. If that's what God's like, I don't want to be part of that. And Jesus calls us back and says, I'm the way. I'm the way. If you want to understand God, look at Jesus. Sometimes people say, well, I'm going to look within to find my God, thanks. I'm going to look with inside me because if I look at others, I'm not very good, but you know, I, I think I'll look inside me. The trouble is when we look inside ourselves to find what God is like, it's immediately just so limited because God is too big to be defined just by the one person. And have you noticed that the, the idea of what God might be like for a 16-year-old person is very different to the idea of what a God, a God might look like to a 40-year-old person or a 60-year-old person? I look back at myself 20 years ago and, and the way I understood God then was pretty blunt and black and white and, uh, and pretty forthright. And I still believe in the, in the same God, but I kind of look at, look at God and I look at life and, and it's not quite as clear-cut as I imagined. And I'm not yet 60, believe it or not, although the youth tell me I look like it. <laughs> the thing is, if we try and find what God, you know, God's given us the God spark within and we just meditate and go quiet and we'll find <laughs> We're on a really sticky wicket. Because have you noticed that if we look within, we notice that, what within, that that which is within us changes when we get hungry or tired. We notice, get grumpy and rat, rat, fractious and argumentative and unpleasant. And is that what God's like? If we really define God within, well, the within changes so much. It's like going to the fun fair and going in that distorted mirror thing. You know, I'll see what God is like in me, and there's this sort of this enormous long kind of body that's distorted and magnified badly. That's what happens when we try and find God within. We distort, and we end up with a grotesque God. Or maybe the last place that people look and say, "Well, what's God like?" and and they take a walk and they see the sunset. Ah, oh, God's amazing. And he is. And maybe they're just sort of taking a look on the, 
on the blue panel or David Attenborough's latest, and they're going, oh, nature's amazing. That must, you know, this tells us about God. That church business, <laughs> they know nothing. We'll find God out there. The trouble is, at a distance, it looks magnificent, doesn't it? But you, you, you get a bit closer, and it becomes dirty and dangerous. Go to a farmyard. Or um, there's times when I've been, sounds a bit exotic, but on safari, you could do it to Whitsade Wildlife Park or wherever, and you, you say, stay in the cars. Leo the lion, you know, you don't want to be patting him. It's tooth and claw. You know, the sunset, oh, that sun is brilliant. Get a bit close, it'll burn you. Survival of the fittest. Yeah, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Day after day they pour forth speech, but actually that's not the end of the psalm. He starts, the psalmist says, yeah, we learn something. But he very turns to says, you know, the word of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord. These are the things that nourish. Or so often we're told, if we focus too much on nature, of saying we'll find God there and understand God there, we end up worshipping it. We end up making idols, making offerings to the seasons. It's the winter solstice soon. You know what they do in the summer solstice? You go down to Stonehenge, there's lots of people there worshipping creation. But creation isn't God, and it doesn't really lead us to know him. You see, there's no forgiveness in nature. There's no compassion in nature. We can learn something, but actually there's many things we will never, ever learn from there. Welcoming the why. It's Advent. It's preparation. Welcoming the why of God made flesh and dwelling amongst us. God wants us to know what he's like. And he takes the initiative. And he comes as little and squidgy and baby. And it's not systematic and it's not set out in a big textbook. And it's not a series of precepts that we learn. But the word made flesh and dwelling amongst us. And God says, I want to know you and I want you to know me. And that Jesus communicates and demonstrates this is God. Listen to this and it's really important. If you move past Jesus, you think, well, Jesus, all right, I'm going to find the true God. If you move past Jesus, you'll move away from God. Because Jesus says, I am God. No one comes to the Father except me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Move past Jesus, you'll move past and move away from God. But equally true, if you stop short of Jesus, you stop short of God. Because he's the best we've got. The only one we've got. The one who says, I am he. The word, the eternal word, the great logos, 
The the one who flung stars into space and with a word created it all into being, dwelt amongst us. And Jesus invites each one of us and says, come get to know me. Come spend time with me. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in me and you'll get to know the Father. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And if you can't believe that, at least believe in the miracles themselves. Welcoming the why. Jess, would you want to come up?